Welcome back to Careers Explained. This week, we pick up where we left off with Michelle Sweeting and her experience in becoming a Supreme Court Justice of New York. She describes an overview of law school, contacts on the bar exam, her experience with civil and criminal law, and what it's like to be a judge. There are a number of restrictions on first-year law students. And that's something that people in doing their research should look at as well, in that there are restrictions on outside employment. That is, if you're going to be a full-time day student at law school, there are some restrictions that say you cannot have outside employment for that first year. And if you do, there are restrictions on the number of hours that you can work and that the focus and the intensity that's required for law school in order to successfully complete it, there are some what we call ABA or American Bar Association rules that prohibit your working while you're a full-time law student. So the first year universally by way of coursework is pretty much the same, no matter which law school you go to, there are certain standard courses that every first year law school will have taken. And there's a method of teaching uh, law. And I don't wanna give a spoiler alert for those who may be applying to law school, but it's called the Socratic method. And I tell you, it will change your educational perspective as it is intended to do to shape your mind to think as a lawyer. But then your second year, you have the opportunity to take what are called electives, courses that you may be interested in, uh, courses, again, above and beyond what you're required to take during your first year. And that's where some students may hone in on some areas of law that they have a particular interest. It also allows you to do certain things called clinics. Clinical programs are hands-on experience. While you're in law school, you can take on some very specific cases what's under the student practice rule. I, as a law student under the student practice rules, had worked in two of the clinics. One was the environmental law clinic, the other of which was a housing clinic. So it allowed me, if there were people who were facing, for instance, eviction, and it depends on each state, the complexity of the cases that you can take and the limitations on what you can do as to the case, but it allowed me to meet with clients, hear their disputes, prepare certain documents with supervision, of course, so you get the opportunity to do those hands-on things uh, during your second year of law school. The third year, of course, is reserved that summer exclusively to the extent that you can be exclusive, that is not working or have other commitments to studying for the bar exam. That too, that three-year overview that I've just given you differs. Differs on if you're a full-time day uh, student versus a part-time night student. And it differs in that some schools are moving toward expanding the law school curriculum to a four-year period, whereas others have narrowed it to a two-year period. 
So it really varies. And again, that research toolbox comes in again to find out what would be the appropriate fit given your circumstances and long-term interests and goals. That was a very helpful overview and I learned a lot and I'm sure other people also appreciate that description. Your third year, you're studying for the bar. Do you have any tips on how you studied that you would think other people could benefit from? Well, I will tell you that my voicemail said, unless it's an emergency, meaning, and if it is, call 911 first and then you can call me back. Um, I say that because it requires that level of intensity, uh, extreme focus on the law. You will probably know more law upon studying for the bar than you will ever know in your career as a legal practitioner. And that's because you're required to know with a heightened level of competency, all areas of law in New York, it may be 22 plus subjects. And of course the bar exam, I will say, Heidi, has changed since I took and passed it the first time in the state of New York. It has changed to what's now called the universal bar exam. When I took it and I can start it by saying, once upon a time, when I sat for the bar exam, it was a two-day examination, one day reserved for what's called the multi-state, where you're required to know about the law that applies generally through all of the states. And that was a multiple choice exam. And then there was the state-specific New York exam, which tested you on New York law, and that included essays. Then there's also, I must add, a third day which uh, tested you on uh, the, I think it was the ethics portion of the exam. So it's a course really of three days. It has changed tremendously since my having taken it. And so the toolbox will really have to be open for this new generation who's sitting for the bar exam to know what those requirements are. Because under the new exam, once upon a time when I took it, your admission and having passed the New York exam gives you the authority to practice law in the state of New York. And depending on how high your score was, you could then be admitted in Washington, DC. And my score having been high enough, I was able to be admitted in Washington, DC. But that was it. Now, with what's called the new universal bar exam, Passing the New York bar gets you admission into a number of other states. The opportunities have been expanded under the new system. And so they will have to research and find out what are those states that you also get admitted to. That's so interesting to hear the shift from before where you would need to be very planned out where you want to be as opposed to now where you have a little bit more flexibility as long as you do your research ahead of time that you could theoretically take it in one state and then move. Because for you, you had two options. If you wanted to practice law and you didn't want to take another bar exam, it was really a commitment, not just 
of a career, but also of your location, which I think is very different from other jobs. So that's a very interesting insight. And once you pass the bar, congratulations on your score. That was high enough to go to DC as well as New York. What were the steps you took from there to get to where you are today? Well, I will tell you that the celebration in my head went on for several weeks because you're so excited that you've overcome what is the major divide and the separation point between a lawyer and an attorney. A lawyer is one who has graduated from law school, but the attorney is the one who passes the bar and now has the legal right to go before a court of law and practice law and be heard in a court of law and who gets those extra letters behind their name called Esquire. The lawyer being JD, Juris Doctorate, and that they have earned and have completed successfully the academic requirements in the field of law, but the ESQ for Esquire means that you have also satisfied the requirements of being admitted to practice and to represent uh, the interests of clients before the court. So it's that distinction uh, by which anyone who has passed the bar exam should proudly uh, proclaim their right to stand before the court of law and execute documents and represent their clients. So I celebrated. Ah, I was very excited about that. Um, and then afterwards, you go on to the admission process because there is another step, Heidi, after you've completed the academics, after you have passed the bar exam, you now must be admitted to the bar. And by that, being admitted means you have to show that you have the character and fitness to be a member of the bar. And that is an application process by which you're asked about your backgrounds, your residency, just who you are from the age of 18 until your date of application. And depending on which courts and which states you're seeking admission to practice law in, it requires a sponsor someone who has known you for a period of at least one year, who's willing to attest before the court that you're someone of character who should be admitted to the bar. The character and fitness interview has been a barrier uh, for some who have done all of the academic work, passed the bar examination, but still there may have been something in their character, namely, what if there was a prior arrest, even if there was not a conviction? But then taking it a step further, what if there was a conviction, regardless of how long it was ago? Or what if there was a violation in your record of the Davidson Code of Conduct, namely the Honor Code? something that happened while you were still a student at Davidson that raises a question about your character and your fitness. Because again, 
you're standing before the court of law representing the interests of clients, which can include their financial interests. But we want to make sure that when you went into the commons at Davidson, and perhaps you did not have your meal card, that they did not rise to a theft of services or cheating on an exam while you were at Davidson. All of these things that may not have seemed relevant as a student, they all now come to light in this character and fitness interview. So when you're going through that and you've been through successfully that path at Davidson, it actually enhances your candidacy in overcoming that character and fitness interview when you can say, yes, I've attended Davidson that had an honor code. Check as to your integrity, check as to your uh, ability to work independently uh, and whether you have a watchful eye over you, knowing that you still uphold certain ethical standards all adhere to your benefit. So you must go through the character and fitness and again, have a sponsor. Lastly, as to the sponsor, that's where having alumni, knowing persons from Davidson who may have gone through this process and with whom you have maintained a relationship and who are upstanding members of the bar who can stand for you and with you and say, I stand with Heidi, I will be her sponsor so that she can be admitted to the bar. And for you, who is your sponsor? My sponsor was a family friend with whom I had relations and worked with uh, prior to my taking and passing the bar exam. It was someone who had mentored me through the legal process and with whom I had worked on a number of community outreach programs and who has seen my growth and development as a child. And he was my sponsor as well as, because I had two, one for federal court and one for state court, my state court uh, sponsor as well was someone who I had interned with at my first job in the district attorney's office. So there were a number of people who were willing to come forward, having uh, known me throughout the process uh, and would able to attest to my work uh, in fitness to now be a member of the bar. And can you explain how it works state versus federal level? You said you had two, is that standard? Do you only apply to one? What are the requirements of that? Well, for New York, uh, once you have uh, taken the bar exam, passed the bar exam, and now you're seeking admission to the state, to the courts of the state of New York, that's an application. And then separate from that, in the state of New York, there's what's called the Eastern District of New York, which is the federal court that hears cases in certain parts of New York. And for those who are unfamiliar, New York has what's called cities, counties, boroughs. Um, and the five boroughs, are, which are also counties in New York City, it's New York, New York. And some say, well, why do they say it twice? Because it's the borough slash county of New York, which is known as Manhattan. And then there's the state of New York. So New York, New York. There are five boroughs or counties in New York. And the federal court, two of which are in New York City, one is in the county or borough of Brooklyn, 
and that county, uh, it hears cases from Queens County and Brooklyn. And then there's another federal court called the Southern District of New York that hears cases in the other counties. And you have to be admitted, don't have to be, but some pursue it, which I did, um, to be admitted in the federal courts. And to be admitted there, you need to have a separate sponsor, one who is admitted to practice in the federal court of the Eastern District if you're applying there and in the Southern District if you're applying there. Once you got your admit admittance into the bar at both the state and federal level, what was your first job out of law school? My first job out of law school was as an assistant corporation counsel in that the city of New York has a law firm, or I should say a team of attorneys who are all employed by the city, the corporation counsel's office, also known as the New York City Law Department. They are the attorneys for the city, its agencies, and its employees. So if ever, whether it's the mayor, uh, any New York City agency is sued, they are represented by this office, which is called the Corporation Counsel's Office. That office, in and of itself, has a number of different units. So there's one unit that represents the city and its interests in family court. There's another unit and team of attorneys who represent the city and its agencies in what's called tort or personal injury cases. There's a whole nother team of attorneys who affirmatively represent the city's interests, meaning they proactively bring cases on behalf of the city. You name an area of law, that office has a branch that then represents the city's interests, either proactively or defending the city in civil lawsuits. That office also has a state office that represents the city and its agencies in matters that arise in the state under state law. And they also have a federal office or unit, I should say, that represents the city and its agencies when they're sued in under federal law. Because I was working in that office and I was specifically assigned to the special federal litigation unit of which I am a founder, it was important that I be admitted both under the state law and the federal law. And that's one of the unique aspects about that office is that you have persons who straight out of law school are taking on the responsibility of representing a municipality and its agencies in federal court. So that's the office at which I had started. And uh, again, one of the founding members of what's called the Special Federal Litigation Unit. And at the Special Federal Litigation Unit, what, how would you describe your role? What did it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I will tell you that it most certainly is a large number of cases and responsibilities. Uh, as you can imagine in a city as large by way of geographic space, but also by way of population and by way of density, that things happen in New York and having the right by way of litigation 
people sue. And it can involve any and everything from a slip and fall on a sidewalk. The city also has a diversity of cases. Um, and I'm, I must, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, before I went to the special federal litigation unit, I was in what's called the general litigation unit, which involved exactly as its name. You could get policy cases, cases that involve homelessness, who is responsible, who's entitled to shelter, who's entitled to health insurance, all of these issues. If you can imagine any and every issue that may impact the city, that office handles and hears those cases. As to the Special Federal Litigation Unit, that unit exclusively, at the time there was only five of us who represented police officers, specifically police officers and members of law enforcement who may have been uh, named as defendants in allegations of excessive use of force, misusing their authority. And so myself and a team of what was then four lawyers were responsible for handling all of those cases. That unit has now morphed into over 100 attorneys now in that unit. Um, and of course, that's a testament to just the expansiveness of that area of law. Uh, but it was founded with just the five of us handling all of those cases in federal court. That sounds like quite the caseload. You had <laughs> got a ratio there of one to 20. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so when you say case, I know it varies depending on the topic, but could you give an example of one that might have been more common than the others in the type of case and what it looked like to take on a case? What does it entail? What is the timeline? Well, every case varies. Uh, and they vary because constitutionally, you have the right to what's called discovery. Discovery is the legal device that even after filing a case, each side has the right to get information from the other side. Information that may result in a settlement of the case, information that may result in perhaps we can resolve it by mediation, meaning there's something that the person may be seeking that just as a matter of law, if the case were to go to court, you may not be able to award it under the law, but you can work it out by speaking to one another. For instance, oftentimes what people are seeking is an apology. But even if that case went to trial or to the highest court, we can't order you to apologize. So it's utilizing these uh, tools and devices that may help resolve disputes by way of information sharing. Perhaps once I get information from you, depositions, meaning hear your testimony, what's called examination before trial, getting your account about what happened, hearing from the other side of what may be their potential defenses, which they may assert by way of an answer to your complaint. Sometimes such matters can be resolved or Maybe what you're looking for is not personal to you, but as a policy change, you want to ensure that what happened to you, you may not necessarily be seeking monetary compensation, but you want to make sure that the policy changes so that it doesn't happen to someone else in the future. 
There's a whole host and variety of reasons why cases may be brought. There's a whole variety of reasons as to why some cases may take longer than others because it may go beyond the reach of that one individual. But again, it may be a class action. Perhaps it impacts a community of people. What may be the precedent? Even if we were to decide it, what would it look like in the future for future claims? All of these things we have to look to and it's the human component as well. How will it impact relations beyond this case? All of these things, uh, Heidi, factor into how long a case can take, where a case will be heard, and the changes in the law. It depends. It may be the law today, and the law may evolve or change tomorrow. So that office, though, hears so many cases, the diversity of the cases, the complexity of the cases, uh, that it is one of the largest, if it were a firm, largest municipal offices, certainly, uh, perhaps, perhaps in the country, just by way of its numbers and the number of cases that it hears, the Corporation Counsel's Office has a very complex uh, level of units and diverse number of units that hear cases. And as one of the five founding members, you must have had more traffic in regard to cases than a lot of others starting first year out of law school that allowed you to get a wide range, kind of like Davidson and seeing different types of cases and each element that you described, how it can play out differently. So from that first role, what did you like and how did that steer your next step? I did like the diversity. Uh, you could be working on a case that involves uh, housing or employment discrimination. You could be working on that in the afternoon. And by the next morning, you have a, a whole nother caseload um, of cases. And also the priorities that cases are given. Uh, some cases need immediate relief. If it's involving uh, a policy that can impact someone the next day, you may have to shift priorities in terms of which cases you hear. So that management by way of caseload, management by way of time, and by way of substantive law. Because the office handles such diverse cases, you become a Jane of all trades, masterful them as well. Uh, you, again, need to know civil service law because a case may involve that. You need to know the administrative code. You need to know the state law. You need to know education law. There are so many areas of this uh, law uh, that you may need to use to apply and to competently represent uh, your clients in those cases that every day could be a new surprise. But every day is always some new level of law that you're learning and that you're really honing your skills of competency in, that it's probably, again, uh, by way of specialization, you become masterful at a number of, of legal areas and in a very short period of time. So remember, I did mention that when you graduate, when you're studying for the bar exam, you will probably know more law 
because you're, you're studying all these subjects with a level of intensity. So you'll know more law then than you'll probably ever learn in your career or even recall because as you start to evolve, you specialize. So the fact that this was my first job out of law school was actually a perfect fit because all of the studies from the bar exam was still in my head. I still remembered all of the nuances of law and knew them on a national level because I had just finished studying with the level of intensity for the bar exam. So I think it actually worked to my advantage. And I'm sure to many individuals' advantages because you were helping so many through in that role. So I'm sure they were happy to have someone who was that knowledgeable of variety of law. And how long were you in that position? I was in the corporation counsel's office for three years. And what prompted you to switch and where did you go next? I went from corporation counsel's office to the district attorney's office. So I went from civil to criminal, but they were very related. And here's why. In the corporation counsel's office, the cases that I handled were cases, some in any event, where persons would allege that they had been falsely arrested or that the prosecutor may have maliciously prosecuted them or something had gone wrong in the criminal prosecution or perhaps there was an absence legal term of probable cause to have arrested the person in the first place. So having that background and experience on the civil side, if there was some claim of a constitutional violation of someone's rights, and now to be in the very office that's on the front end of the arrests and the prosecution, I was able to bring that insight um, as to how can this criminal prosecution now manifest into a potential civil case, or better yet, how to avoid that from happening by ensuring that we uphold the constitutional standards that are applicable in the criminal court case so that we don't have these mishaps that may arise later in a civil case. So my background and experience uh, from the civil side was integrated into the criminal side and the two worked hand in hand to now give me the fullness and being able to even more competently uh, represent in all sides the, uh, as, a, as a prosecutor who ensure that there was probable cause or to ensure that before someone is prosecuted, all of the constitutional mandates are being upheld and protected because then if that case did result in a civil lawsuit, then certainly I would know what, what documents were related or what claims could potentially be raised. I, I think that it strengthened my ability in both areas. So your civil experience helped you to serve a more preventative role in the criminal court then so you could cut off violations of rights before they ever happened. Or ensure that... In reviewing cases, mm -hmm. I'm looking at it with an eye for potentially what may later arise, uh, result in a civil action. So I wanna make certain that the cases prior to prosecuting, that all of these standards have been upheld because this may potentially be a case where someone's rights, if they were 
uh, violated or even alleged to have been violated, the integrity of the proceedings and the records and all of those things should be preserved so that all parties, whether it's civil or criminal, the due process of law and the high standards of ensuring constitutional protections should be preserved in all, in all cases. And I think that that triggered also my interest in being a judge because I've seen it from all sides, from the criminal side, from the civil side. And now when I'm making rulings and decisions as a judge, I have the background of the fullness of the record or at least what the expectations should be and what the legal standard is in deciding cases that come before me. And can you give us a visualization of each of these three roles, the civil, the criminal, and then being a judge in your day-to-day -day? when someone wants to know, are you working with other people? Are you mostly at your desk? Are you mostly in the courtroom listening? What is it? What are the biggest parts of your day and what do they look like? Well, listening is every part of the day and every aspect of my role as a judge. And even prior to becoming a judge, it's listening. And listening is an active skill set. And if you listen as though you don't know, but speak, only when you do, find that that's a good combination. So I actively listen and make certain that people are heard because sometimes that's the greatest challenge that no one wants to walk into a courtroom that, where they feel that the case has already been decided. Then what's the point of having written those volumes of motions and briefs? What's the point of presenting as some attorneys nail-biting the night before, preparing their oral argument, if when they walk in the courtroom, I've already decided the case. So no predeterminations, and that includes no predeterminations based on my own background and experience. That's called implicit biases. I cannot, nor do I, make assumptions about what the outcome should be, or make assumptions about how I would have handled the case if I were the uh, prosecutor or if I were on the civil side. It's giving each side a fair and full opportunity to be heard and to adjudicate the cases based on the facts and the evidence that's before me. So those listening skills are critically important. The writing, I spend a lot of time in deliberative thought and being a judge can be an isolating position. I do not have uh, the, uh, as, as some being a trial judge, you decide the case. I decide the case. I don't have a panel of other jurists with whom I can say, what do you think? There's a television show called Hot Bitch. Well, they get to say and weigh in on what the other jurists think. And because there's three of them, you only need two votes and how the two vote, that's the outcome. I don't have the luxury of a commercial break and meaning within a half an hour TV show, I'm gonna come back with the result in 30 minutes. 
So there are things that the deliberative process and sometimes reflecting uh, over the arguments, applying the law, doing research, uh, really weighing the evidence and having the courage to make what is a sound and solid decision based on that evidence takes a level of courage because it may be something that's in conflict with how I personally may feel, but that's the direction in which the law governs. So those are the types of things in terms of my daily routine, it's deliberating. And again, sometimes it's in isolation, it's listening, it's writing. I do issue a number of written decisions and I often, even on the shortest case, with the shortest of instructions, often do a written decision so that someone has, when they appear before me, when they leave, something in writing that says, this is what the judge said. Because, Heidi, not everyone has the advantage of a podcast and they can play back perhaps what is said, but when someone's standing before a judge and you're nervous, and sometimes when you're representing yourself, it all sounds like Charlie Brown. Blah, blah, blah. And then when you ask and you go home and tell your family, what happened in court today? They go, I have no idea what the judge said. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I oftentimes, even in the simplest of cases, write written orders, which give you instruction as to what my expectations are, what it is, and why it is that I've ruled the way that I have. So that's sort of the fullness of my day. That does not include, of course, oral arguments. Lawyers, or if you're self-represented, may appear before me so that I can hear them orally and answer questions that I might have about their submission. That does not, in course, include trials. I also try cases, and we're still in the pandemic but I've had jury trials, in-person jury trials. I've had virtual trials. So all of that I do during the courses of my day uh, and part of my responsibilities as a judge. That visual was very helpful and I didn't realize that you still wear all of those hats even pending on the day. What determines what you're doing on a given day. Do you have a quota of a certain number of cases you need to hear in a day or how many cases you need to personally try? Well, cases are calendared and it all comes as well by way of structuring. And we talked earlier about time management as a student. There's also time management as a jurist. Uh, prior to my current assignment, I presided over family court cases, and those cases in that court is one of the first courts that had what's called time certains. And by that, while I'm in court all day, as well as court staff, we started and implemented an expectation for litigants and attorneys as to when their cases will be called, how much time they will have before the court, and what's the expectation as to when their case will end? So I would say, Miss Heidi, if your case is on at 9.30 on Tuesday, 
you are to be here from 9.30 until 11. Depending on the complexity of the case, I will allot the necessary time. So that helps give uh, people an opportunity to continue forward with their lives that may not necessarily be consumed completely with a court appearance that allows people to keep other commitments, whether it's to their employment or to their families. And it gives them uh, a focus that they know that the time allotted is to focus on the issues and to narrow them accordingly. So that structure is the same structure that I have applied to my current role which is what are called time certains. I review my cases well in advance of the scheduled date to make sure that the appropriate time is reserved uh, for persons, and of course, some cases that may go over, um, but that's an exception rather than the rule. And there should be sufficient time then to ensure that everyone who's calendared for that particular day can be heard. Always, Courts, and this is universal, I'm certain that all courts can benefit from greater resources. That includes more support staff. We can always benefit from having fewer cases. Our caseloads are relatively high and they're busy courts. And I think that because of that, it's important that time is managed sufficiently and efficiently so that Sometimes cases have to be rearranged because emergencies do arise. Mm -hmm. There are some persons who need access to the court right now. They're called emergencies. And there is that flexibility that I have to have as a judge to accommodate those cases. So yes, the, the doors of the court are open um, in terms of scheduling. It's a prioritization by way of the individual jurists and the assignment by way of trials, those come as they are assigned, but it's a management of the completeness of all of the cases from beginning to end. And who is assigning you the cases, the trials, these elements? Well, that varies. That varies by court. Um, and again, the New York courts have so many layers uh, administratively, as well as just by way of courts. We have a civil court and within the civil court, there's a housing court, there's a small claims court, there's a family court, there's a matrimonial part. There's so many different parts just in the court itself. There are administrative judges uh, and administrative judges are responsible for just that, making sure that the overall administration of cases, that cases are assigned, uh, cases that by way of age, perhaps there's a matter that's been pending in the court for some time, making sure that there's a jurist who's available to preside over that trial, or perhaps there's a jurist or a part of the court where this case could more appropriately be mediated to make sure that those cases get mediated. Or what if it's a case that's called, um, that needs to be heard on an expedited track because you may have litigants uh, due to their age, or they're out of the country. And if the case is not heard, we may the evidence may become stale. There's a whole administrative uh, team of judges and administrators who assist in the 
setting the priorities of the cases that go beyond just my own management of my calendar. That's a whole nother um, administrative process by which the cases are assigned. Gotcha. Lots of complexities and variance between courts and states, I'm sure, at that level. What is what are some things or one thing that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were starting out your career after college? There are so many things that I still don't know, Heidi, <laughs> that I'm, I'm still on a truth-seeking, life-seeking adventure. <laughs> but I will tell you there are two things that I recommend for your listeners. And one of them is having confidence and who you are and your intuition as to who and what you will become. And sometimes the road to doubt or the road is filled sometimes with so much doubt that you don't realize the greatness of what you have already. And if you simply stay on that path and that course, you will get to your destination. Uh, and, and that you have, have confidence in the foundational skills that you have developed, that instinctively it's good enough. Uh, the second thing, and it's something that I'm with quotes still working on, is have more fun. Life can be so challenging. And I know that at Davidson, I was so focused um, and pointedly so uh, that we all have aspirations and ambitions and we've started this discussion, Heidi, where I said our date of birth, there's a dash, and then there's our date of death. And we want not our tombstones to read the cause of death was ambition. And that you didn't have fun. Just really take time to explore the relationships at Davidson, the people who you're encountering, even the beauty of the college campus the sanctity of a co college campus, your goal right now and your job, if you will, is to learn. And it's to learn from other people, learn from your failures, learn from your successes, learn vicariously from other people, learn about yourself, learn about, you know, something as simple as just observing the nature around you on a beautiful campus such as Davidson, there are so many things that we just don't take advantage of. And I will tell you that while you're in college, I know I did, I had this feeling of being so much older than I was, that now when I look back on life and say, I was how old when I was at Davidson? Wow, if only I could be that age again, but the level of seriousness, the level of intensity by which I have studied and for which I am grateful of its outcome, if I could do it again, I would probably solidify, develop, and foster and invest more in the personal relationships that can carry you into the future and give myself room to breathe, to exhale, and to just enjoy the moment of being a student 
and adopting the phrasing of another Davidson institution called the love of learning. And to really love it and enjoy it in some of, some of the advice that I would share with the younger me who was a student at Davidson.